seat. Well, as we've been considering the Sermon on the Mount, as I said to you last week, we now come to the body of this sermon. And this next section, uh, this first section, our Lord Jesus presents himself as the true interpreter of the law, as the one who truly uh, understands the heart and the, and the, the matter at the heart of the law. And the, oppo the opposition here, before we move on to consider, I hope to get through the three of these uh, uh, before we come to consider each of these antitheses, is to consider what Jesus is doing. Is Jesus here contrasting himself with Moses and, put it, and, and presenting himself as uh, uh, a greater Moses? Yeah, certainly he is. But is the contrast here to, with the law in the Old Testament or to, with the understanding of the law of the scribes? I think when you look at verse 18, uh, 17 and 18, when Jesus says he came not to destroy the law, it is clear that Jesus is, is here not opposing uh, Moses, but expanding and, and uh, deepening what Moses meant. And he's opposing the scribes and the, and the Pharisees' interpretation of the law with the correct spirit of the law. The letter kills, Paul says, but the spirit gives life. And here Jesus is going at the heart of what the law meant. He's not countering the, what the law says. He's opposing what the teachers of the law of Jesus of his day was, were saying. He's not critiquing the law of God. He's critiquing the misinterpretation of the law that had arisen in his days. And that's why Jesus, turn with me, we're in Matthew 5, so turn to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And a, a very astonishing, astonishing statement is said there. In verse 28 of chapter 7, as Jesus finishes preaching, he's, it is said that when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Here the, the issue is that Jesus speaks in a way that is completely out of the ordinary way that the people were uh, uh, used to listen. The scribes and the Pharisees never spoke like this when they taught. They always spoke, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that. They, they never spoke of their own. But here Jesus, right at the beginning of the body of this sermon, he speaks in the first person. I say to you, this is unusual. This is unusual even for the whole of Scripture. Jesus is the only one who can actually speak like this out of his own authority because he's God incarnate. Even the prophets dare not, speak, dare not speak like Jesus spoke here. How did the prophets speak when, when they had a word from God? They say, Thus says the Lord. It's not me saying, it's the Lord. But Jesus even goes further than how the prophets spoke. Why? Because he's God himself. He's God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. All the others did. All what the, the prophets did was repeat what they heard from God. And all that the scribes did was repeat what they heard from others. Here Jesus speaks as one having authority. And that's why the people were astonished. And that's why the Pharisees and the scribes hated him. 
Every Jew would have understood this formula. You have heard that it was said. And that's how Jesus begins. You have heard what it was said. This was known as a, a halakha. A halakha. It was the oral tradition. This was the way that every scribe and every rabbi, every Pharisee began his teaching. You have heard it said this, uh, and so-and-so said this. But here Jesus goes beyond that, and he speaks of his own authority. So three, there are six antitheses in, a, in this next section. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get to the three, through the three of them uh, this evening. So firstly, Jesus interprets murder. Verse 21 to 26. Jesus says, You have heard what it was said of, the, of old, to those of old. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The, the rabbis here believed that to kill, the, the commandment not to kill uh, was fulfilled just by not killing someone, just by not, not committing the offense of murder in the first degree. But what Jesus comes to, uh, to say out of the, 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 the commandment is that besides that, much deeper than that, much, much more deeper than the outward act of murder, at the heart, this command deals with what is inside one person, what, what goes and moves in one person. Let me try and explain this I, in a different way. You know the three points that we put on, the, on, the, on when we're writing something, where we're quoting someone, and you put three points at the end because you don't want to write the whole thing, or because there's more to be said, but you don't really want to uh, write it all. You put three points, three, um, I don't know how they're called, but it's called an ellipsis. And what Jesus is here saying is that the law of Moses kind of functions as an ellipsis. There's more than just what is stated. Uh, there's more underlying than just what is stated. When, when God says, do not murder, yes, it is speaking about first-degree murder, but there's an elliptical message there that goes deeper than that. When it comes to ellipses in the law, let's say it, this means that there is a broader context that is related to the act in question, and whatever is prohibited in the, in the act in question is also prohibited in all the things that lead up to that act. When God says you should not kill, thou shalt not kill, uh, this consequently means that we should do nothing that harms the life of our neighbor. And, the, and, the, and here comes the part of anger and hatred without cause, offenses, slander, quarrels between people. All of these things are prohibited in this do, you shall not murder. And another thing, another aspect of an ellipsis here is that whatever uh, the, is the opposite of what the law prohibits is commanded to us. Uh, this works both ways. If there is something commanded to us positively in Scripture, whatever is 
contrary to that positive command we are forbidden from doing. And whatever we're forbidden from doing uh, in Scripture, whatever is the opposite of that prohib- prohibition, we're commanded to do. So if, when, the, when the law says, you shall not murder, the contrary, the opposite of you shall not murder, is what we are commanded to do. We are to be uh, pro-life. We are to uh, promote safety, well-being, and the sanctity of life. And what was said to the ancients here uh, is that you shall not murder. Or I've turned from there. You shall not murder. Let me turn back to Matthew 5. You shall not murder. You have heard what was said to those of old, to those of uh, the ancient times. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger. What was said here, Jesus is saying, it's much more deep. It it goes deeper than that. You heard what was said to them. This is the interpretation of the rabbis. And and even here there is a a twisting of of what the law said already. Uh, You will be in danger. It's kind of like it's diminishing the, the, the... the consequence of breaking this, and Jesus is uh, addressing, it's like they're reducing the meaning of the, of the, the command to just the, the one action and, uh, and the consequence to just a, 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 a nondescriptive consequence. And Jesus says, don't atten- uh, we don't attenuate the, the transgression. And what Jesus does is he broadens the scope. Let's, let's say it like this. Jesus broadens the scope of the sin. He points at anger, insult, contemptuous words, calling someone a fool, uh, calling someone a raka, uh, or, or saying raka, which basically means to spit, uh, being angry at someone. That is the, at the heart of sin. And let's, let, let, let's be clear about this. Jesus is not saying that anger, that, that the anger that is sinful is the anger that leads to murder. He's saying that any anger, regardless if it leads to murder or it doesn't lead to murder, is sinful. Any anger without cause is sinful. In other words, the heart attitude of being angry and the sin of murdering is equal no, it's not equal. It's as in important as the act. Although they are distinct, although they are um, certainly um, different in the, in the sense of, uh, of real-world consequences, in the eyes of, of God, anger is incipient disguised murder. And to go back to the, to the issue of righteousness, what Jesus is saying is that real righteousness doesn't lie in the actus, acts of outward, uh, in the outward acts. What does Jesus say? If your righteousness does not exceed that, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying here, real righteousness, real righteousness of the heart is the righteousness that puts away this sin. Many people, many of us, we harbor anger in our hearts. We have anger in, in our words. We have anger and hatred to such a degree that, that it seems like we almost desire people, someone to, the person that we, is the object of that anger to be dead. If it was possible, or 
It is possible for any of us, what Jesus is saying here, it is possible for any of us to not be involved ever in our lives in a fist fight, ever in our lives in a, in a, in a, in a fight to the death. It is possible for any of us uh, to never been involved in any of this, but to have the sentiment in the heart that is just as murderous as actually performing it. And we are just as guilty. And in this point, we're, we're all guilty. It's a matter of the heart. And, it, it, and that's the distinction between Jesus and, and the world and the way that the Pharisees and the scribes looked at it and the way the world, our world looks at it. Our world looks at, at, the, at the outward action and judges people on the outward action. Our world says, uh, if you do this, this is the consequence. But in the, in the courts of heaven, in the courts where God is the judge, it's the innermost being that gets uh, judged, as well as the outward actions. But, not only our, but for God, it's not only our actions, it's the, but it's also our words and our intentions. Don't insult. Put away those things. Don't be a slave to anger. Jesus uses two examples here. He uses the example, one from culture and, uh, and uh, from his, uh, he uses two examples here, one from a, a religious life and one from a, from a business life. Uh, from his own cultural and historical context to move the, or to, to take this, this point home. Turn with me to Jeremiah 7, uh, verse 8 to 11. Jeremiah 7, verse 8 to 11. As we read the prophet, he says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered to, all, uh, to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called my, by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. What Jesus is applying here is the concept of the Old Testament, that God sees all, even what is in the heart. And the first illustration is quite clear. It's a faithful Jew that lives uh, in conformity with the law. He comes to the altar with an offering. He brings his, his gift. He's, he's in the middle of his praise and prayer. And it dawns on him, since God has been so gracious and good to me, shouldn't I treat my brother likewise? He remembers, Mr. So-and-so. We're not in good speaking terms. We're not, we're, not, we're not really in fellowship with one another. He has something against me. He has something uh, that he is upset with me. He has something for which he blames me. And Jesus says, go, first be reconciled 
to your brother and then come and offer your gift. A few points to note here. Who is at fault in this matter? Jesus doesn't care about it. It's irrelevant. Jesus doesn't single out who was the guilty party or who wasn't. Or he doesn't insist that he take the initiative, the one who was guilty. Each is responsible to make the first move, regardless of who is mostly to blame. There is really no indication as well that the grievance that this brother has against uh, the person it must be a justified one before action is taken. If even if someone only thinks that he has a right to be angry or bitter with you, take action. He may have no legitimate grounds whatsoever, but that is not the point, is it? Another thing that is clear here, and it's from Jeremiah 7 as well, we, we see that, um, is that it is more important to be reconciled with your brother than to engage in religious ceremony. It's not that religious ceremony, that it's not that worshiping God is not important, it's trivial or secondary, it's primary, it's the, it's the most wonderful thing that we do with our lives, standing before the presence of God. But what God, what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to us is that before you can do those things, before you... You, 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 you put your heart to this, to this act. Be sure to reconcile yourself because it's the heart that matters. Because it is very easy for us to replace true heart worship with just outward ceremony. Oh, I go to church on a Sunday. Oh, I go to church both morning and evening. While the while our hearts are broken inside and we're full of sin. It is very easy to substitute true devotion with ceremony. It's very easy to substitute integrity, purity, love with outward obedience. And Jesus is saying, before you start thinking about outward obedience, go and obey it in the, in the, in the private. Or before you start thinking about public obedience, go obey in private. We all love to do this, don't we? To cover our inconsistencies and our inadequacies with, with an outward religiosity whenever we're in public. But at the heart is true devotion of true devotion is love for God and love for your neighbor, is true relationships. And the second illustration that God uses, or Christ uses here, is the one uh, in verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in, on the way with him, while both of you are still walking together, while both of you are still in agreement. Agree with him quickly. Reconcile with him quickly. The idea here is there is a debt that needs to be paid. And go and pay it quickly while both of you are still on the same path. Because there will come a time that he will deliver you to the judge. The judge will deliver you to the officer and you will be thrown in prison. And assuredly I say to you, by no means you'll get out of there till you have paid every last penny. The point here by Jesus, and before we move forward, and 
uh, and we need to really move forward in haste, is that the, it, is imp it is of vital importance, our relationships with others, with dealing with, with others, uh, with, with dealing with the internal uh, um, enmity that we have towards others. It isn't just enough to control our outward display of our feelings. It isn't just enough to, to, to be able to uh, suppress and push down those things. If in your heart you're brewing hatred, it will eventually come out. We often think, don't we, uh, as long as you avoid conflict, as long as you avoid this, this and that conflict, you're really upset, you're burning on the inside, but the righteous thing for me to do is to hold my peace. And Jesus says, no. Jesus is not merely just forbidding the fighting and the arguing. He is forbid forbidding all of those inner feelings, those urgings that cause the fighting and the arguing. And how are we handling this how are we purging ourselves of these hatredful hateful attitudes how are we thinking of our brothers and sisters what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of your brothers and sisters Are we p working diligently to suppress and purge and, and take away the, the beginnings, the first movements of that hatred and that anger that is so natural to us that produces hostility towards one another? Or we allow it to linger and fester? We allow that, that, that kind of like the, the next um, antithesis that, God, that Christ gives us, about the lustful look. Are we allowing our, our hearts to look and settle and, and allow that to fester? What Jesus is saying, do not allow it to fester. It will kill you. He will send you to an eternity. You're in danger of hell, Jesus says. And then the second one. Having dealt with the, the sixth commandment, now Jesus turns it, uh, to his attention to the seventh commandment. Verse 27, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus uh, points what the rabbis thought. The rabbis limited adultery to uh, the sexual unfaithfulness only. Jesus, however, goes and expands the meaning of adultery, of, of this sin, to uh, comprehend and to include just the look, the lustful look of the eyes. Although man cannot judge this, Jesus says God knows it. And God sees the, the look and the unclean heart. God searches the heart and condemns the intention as if it were the completed sin. What Jesus is saying is that you break the seventh commandment, not just by going to bed with uh, a person who is not your wife or your husband. You break the seventh commandment just by the intention, the desire 
to illicitly allow your mind to think of that thing. And I'm not saying, and I don't think scripture uh, goes as far as to say that desire and practice are one-to-one uh, -one identical. I think there is enough uh, in scripture to say that heart sin and sin in practice in, uh, outwardly, in outward form, it is distinct. But what, what Jesus is saying is both of them are sin. Both the desire and the following through with it. They are already sin. The look Jesus mentions here is just not just a casual glance, but it's a fixed, f lingering look with lustful purposes. But the point here is not to argue when does a, a look stop being a look and, a, and, a, and lusting starts and be, becomes lust. Because as someone said, it, it, it's a razor's edge kind of distinction. You cannot really distinguish it. And why would you? Why would you want to know? It's like, is it five seconds? If I just look for five seconds, is it okay? No, certainly five seconds of lusting is lust. Is it, what is it? That's not the point. It's not the point to try and argue what is a, just a look and, and a fleeing from that look and true lusting. The point is that we need to mortify that sin. That there is a conflict happening in, within ourselves, where a conflict between the flesh and the spirit constantly happening. And the, and the old man always constantly is trying to raise up and, and, and follow through with these and drag us uh, to, to, into sin. And, and we are to fight it. I'm not a big philosopher, or I'm not big into philosophy, but I think at, at some points in God's, uh, I'll say it again, uh, in God's common grace, he has allowed people who are, in fact, pagans to uh, understand something about the inner workings of the human mind. And I think Plato... And, and the people who follow from Plato, they understood something about what moves us. Uh, and they, they spoke about the two uh, wills of men. And I think it is biblical. There is something of a biblical statement in this, or, or, or it is something of, uh, of, of, of truthfulness. They would say that there is a, a passion kind of will, an animal kind of will in all of us, uh, an instinct kind of will, where we... we where we're driven by the passion. I want food. I need to eat. I eat. That's animal will. But then they would say that there is a, a higher will. A, a reasoned will. A will that actually converses, as Plato would say, with the, with the divine will. Whatever Plato meant for the, by divine is certainly not what the Bible means by divine. But that's what he would say. There is a, a, a reasoned will in man that uh, communicates with the divine and, and, uh, and, and overtakes and, and controls the, the, the animal will. And Plato used the analogy of two, uh, a horse being driven by two, or a horse, a carriage being driven by two horses. One of the horse was named uh, reason, the other was named passion, and there was all, they were always in, 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 in conflict, pulling each his own way. And, and, but I think that is part of what's going on in, in our hearts. I think he is right. We, we have human, uh, animal, natural will that is always 
pushing towards these, these things. And especially those of us who have been regenerated by the Spirit, we now have a reasoned will that, that mediates the animal instinct and pushes it down and suppresses it and mortifies those things. And as we reason with the divine will revealed to us in Scripture. And Jesus is saying here something along those lines. If your right eye causes you to sin, there is this conflict, clearly. And if it causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it away from you. Don't allow it. It is quite radical. It is shocking. Cut it out. Cut your eye. Cut your right hand out. Why is it radical? Because sin is a radical thing. And when... for. Drastic uh, consequences. You need drastic solutions. And yes, Jesus is not uh, uh, advocating here for uh, literal physical amputation of the right eye and the right hand. You know why? Because even if it's your eyes that cause you to sin, uh, if you take your eyes out, it's going to be your ears, it's going to be your hands, it's going to be your senses, all of them. We're all, all all our bodies are are prone to, to, to being uh, tempted why? All our members are prone to being tempted. Why? Because it, the problem is in the heart. And you cannot amputate the heart. But praise be to God that the heart can be transformed and is transformed by the Spirit of, God, of Christ. What Jesus is saying is do not pamper it. Do not flirt with it. Do not enjoy just nibbling a little bit at just that look. And how much of a stimuli we have in our society today. You just need to turn on the TV and you look at the adverts. Everything seems to be in one way, shape or form uh, feeding that lustful attitude. And perhaps the, the drastic attitude that we all have to do is stop consuming those things. If it's your, your, your TV that causes you this and, and all of those adverts, switch off your TV, throw it away, you don't need it. If it is your phone or your computer, if it's your alone time, the times that you, you're alone and no one's looking and you just, you just really go quickly on, the, on that website. You just quickly go and, and look at, at something. If it's those things that what Jesus is saying, this is the drastic attitude, put it away. Take it out. Don't allow it to linger and fester. Maim it, Jesus is saying. Take it out. (coughs) Jesus was quite clear about it. It is better to lose one member and to enter life, eternal life, maimed, than to retain our whole body and go to hell. It is better to forego some things in our life here. It is better to sacrifice some things, to cut off some things, to amputate some things that we, can, we would love to experience in this world, but we can't. But to, be, to enter into the next eternal, into eternal life than to risk final destruction. And, and brothers and sisters, how many things we have in this culture now to amputate ourselves from? 
It's the internet. It's all over it. Uh, all over it. It's the. It's all kinds of signs and things are out there. I'll finish with. We'll look at divorce next week, but. What Jesus is saying is quite radical. He's saying if you don't fight sin, you will not by any means enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't fight lust, you will not by any means enter the kingdom of heaven. Without holiness, no one will see God. It's, it's not really the, the, the point that Jesus is making. It's not that you need to be 100% holy 100% of the time. But he says, if you are mine, if you belong to me, you will fight for, uh, for these things. You will fight against these things, that is. You will, you will not always succeed. That is true. No one of us is perfect. No one of us is, is able to uh, succeed 100% of the time in the fight against sin. As, as uh, our brother, Pastor Jeremy says, the sin is that old master. And sometimes, although we no, no longer belong to that old master, sin still, uh, his voice still uh, rings in our ears and we, we, we stumble and we think we are still enslaved to him. And, and we, we, we go and we obey and we fail. Although we are not no longer under his, his, his control. Yes, we will not, not succeed 100% of the time. But Jesus is saying, you will fight it. Are you resolved to fight against sin? Even if you don't succeed flawlessly. Because a faith, a true Christ-given, justifying faith is a lust, sin, fighting faith it's not that we become perfect and flawless but he produces in us a, a desire to fight more and more against it it's that hymn we will not be singing we'll sing another one um, it's that hymn oh for a heart to praise my God to, to praise my God a heart for, from sin to set free of. Let me see if I can find it quickly. We'll close. Oh, for a heart 450. We'll not be singing it. Um, there's a, a, a verse there. A heart. In every thought renewed, that's verse 4, and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord of thine. That is the heart that Jesus wants us to have. That's what he wants us to push uh, and to fight for. Fight against sin. Fight against the, the, the desires of the flesh. Let's sing our, our final uh, hymn. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll look at divorce next week, uh, and I'll tell you the reason why. It's not that I don't think it is important, uh, but we'll, we'll come to deal with it uh, at length at another point at, in Matthew 18. Perhaps we'll, we'll just jump uh, this next section for next week. Well, 
I'll, uh, I'll pray about it and we'll consider.